0: Welcome to the Light Gray Art Lab podcast. I'm Calvin Bauer and I am currently enjoying uh, some very cold air conditioning in the basement of Light Gray Art Lab um, while outside is very humid. We've been enjoying so much rain here in Minneapolis, uh, which is great when it's raining and very bad the next day when all of that rain becomes a blanket of m- moisture that just um, encapsulates you in your own private humidity bubble. But summer is here. Summer's great. I love it. I live it. You know, I've, I've been putting on a lot of sunscreen, getting a lot of freckles, and uh, I feel great about it. In the gallery, we also have a ton going on in the summertime. Right now, Lindsay and Jenny are over in Norway uh, leading a bunch of really amazing people around and exploring and talking about process and Just learning new things. I'm sure that if you've been paying attention to the Instagram, you've seen a bunch of updates. And if you haven't, you should definitely check out uh, the stories. Uh, They've been updating it as frequently, I think, as they can. And there's so many beautiful locales that I am enjoying from afar. So that's happening. In the gallery, we have work from our Iceland residents from last year. So everyone created work that was Based on their experience in Iceland, we have animations, and we have kind of experimental video work. We have illustrations, we have zines, we have sketchbooks, we have photography. You should definitely stop by if you are in the area, or you can go on our website and check it out there. Then coming up, we have our tribute to the fantastic and renowned card game Magic the Gathering. That's going to be happening on July 6th, and we also have some events surrounding that that we are working on getting uh, scheduled, and so you should keep an eye out for that and also come to the opening on July 6th. Um, There's also going to be a second opening at the same time uh, called The Ultimate Fantasy that is just about general fantasy stuff, and so if you're into that kind of thing, come sling some spells, don your wizard robes and hat, and um, and and just, you know, nerd out with us. Also, we have other travel programs happening this summer. Our, our 2018 Iceland residency is going to be happening in July. Uh, and we cannot wait to experience that with you and with all of our residents. So, speaking of all of this great stuff and travel and Iceland and being an artist and all things surrounding such um, topics. I am overjoyed to sit here with our friends and Iceland resident from 2017 and just cool illustrator, comics person, um, boat expert. uh, Accurate. Yeah, yeah? I'll take it. Is that that good? Okay, boatist. Boatist. What is the proper term for like a boat... A licensed boat operator,
1: a sailor, <laughs> a captain. <laughs> I mean, I am not a captain. You could you could say tall ship sailor, and that's accurate. Okay. Uh, I I do like botist though. I think I'm probably going to try and popularize that. In I li- the,
0: in I the like botis. Yeah, use hashtag BOTUS to support Lucy Bellwood's <laughs> um, campaign to uh, legitimize that word. Yeah. I was trying to find a better word for word, but here we are. Job title. <laughs> Job title. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is Lucy Bellwood. Lucy Hello. is uh, from Portland, and she is currently on a book tour for her new book.
1: 100 Demon Dialogues.
0: And so she's going to be at Majors and Quinn uh, tonight, although I'm going to be releasing this podcast later, but the day date... So
1: sorry, you missed it.
0: You missed it. I hope you were there. It was Wasn't so it great? great. Yeah.
1: Didn't you like the part where I just edit in something after the fact, Calvin, that... Describes what actually happened. I don't know. Yeah. That time where I ate an elephant, it was super cool.
0: Cool. I'll I'll try to do my best Lucy voice. It'll be something like <laughs> you know, I just suddenly just...
1: go through Lady Puberty and my voice drops. Many, right. many octaves. It's
0: it's just gonna be me like, I read my book. <laughs> Remember the part where I said a joke and everyone laughed. Um <laughs> But oh, yeah, oh boy. Uh, welcome. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast.
1: I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to see the gallery, too. Like, I've been following Light Gray Online for many years now. And it's really, uh, it's awesome to be in the room where it happens. Or underneath the room where it happens, I guess. <laughs> we're like in downstairs the, from the room where it happens.
0: In the dungeon. Yeah. In the podcast dungeon. Which is honestly maybe what I'll call this place from mm-hmm. now on. Because the basement's no fun. But podcast dungeon? Pretty yeah. sick. Yeah, it's, it's good to have you. How are you enjoying Minneapolis so far?
1: Well, I've been here for about 12 hours. Mm-hmm. I've been asleep for most of those hours. Great. Uh, <laughs> the sad part about organizing a book tour for yourself is that you get to go to all these cities. That, okay, the great part is you get to go to all these cities that you maybe have never been to before. You get to see friends in different places. The bad part is that you're kind of at the whim of when bookstores and comic shops can mm. confirm you for events, and sometimes that means I feel very fortunate. Thus far, I have not had to, barring one event, schedule a travel day on the same day and as, as an event. So mm. most of the time, I'm coming into town like I did last night, spending a night, having a day to d- dink around. Doing an event and then flying out the next day or taking the train or the bus or whatever. Uh, and that's pretty civilized, but it also doesn't leave a ton of room for doing stuff. But mm-hmm. it's cool to be here. It's cool to have seen the Minneapolis skyline. I didn't know the Mall of America was in Minneapolis. so really? now I know. it's a thing I'd heard of, but right. like I never knew where it was. I just knew it was a big mall. And uh, we kind of passed that across the Mississippi. That was good. Yeah, uh, I'm really excited to go check out Majors and Quinn tonight and see a good bookstore. I only just saw Fargo for the first time in my life, like I'm maybe two months ago, so I feel very prepared for being here.
0: Oh, like the movie, not yeah. the actual place. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I had not seen it until like the first year that I was in Minneapolis, and I've never seen actual like real life Fargo. <laughs> so, um, you're I I think you're you're basically doing what Minneapolis people do: sleep. Look at the Mall of America, but don't go inside.
1: <laughs> and under no circumstances should Dude, you go inside you the go Mall inside. of America.
0: Uh, and crossing the Mississippi. Those are things that we just, that's, that's, I fit the, right in. I'm a natural. Exactly. Now all you have to do is um, get seasonal depression. Which
1: I've got that unlocked, honestly. Cool. Like not as bad as you guys have it, but I have the the downgraded Portland version of that, sure. which works just fine for me. That's enough depression for me. Thank you very much. Y-
0: you do have to hold up like all of the uh, positive emotions that we uh, start to lose during our 18 years of winter. that yeah. happen. It's kind of it's kind of a like Chronicles of Narnia where the world is just like in winter forever, mm-hmm. and that's just like the what they have to deal with. That's that's kind of us, you know? Yeah. What
1: do you, what do you do like to, Cri- to stay alive?
0: Uh, Oh, <laughs> that's see, that's a good question. Cause you're um, still here
1: and you've been here for several years. So like, do people generally get out of town in the winter to try and survive? No, they you, just stay you, here and suffer. You
0: do you do suffer? Yeah. It's funny there. I mean, it, it's probably cause most of the people I know can't really afford to just like dip. Yeah. Um, so there are like events that happen and I think that like the community does a lot to like make sure that people are getting out of their house. Hmm. Um the only problem is that it is it's the it's the time between you leaving your front door and getting into the next door that is the uncomfortable part because yeah. it is so cold. This year we had negative 15 degree weather uh, over the course of, like, New Year's Eve. Oof. And I and a bunch of friends were going to, like, this cool mansion party. And it was just <laughs> so brutal. And, yeah. of course, we're all, like, dressed up and, like, we want to look nice, but there's only so much right. you can do when you have to prepare for, like, a, a day-after-tomorrow-style uh apocalypse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: But... Enough about the weather.
1: Let's talk about art.
0: Let's talk about art. So you have this new book. Can you tell me more about it?
1: Totally. So 100 Demon Dialogues is the printed version. Uh, it was funded on Kickstarter last year and is coming out in stores this summer. Uh, it's a collection of comics that I drew for the 100 Day Project, which mm. is a kind of does what it says on the tin. You draw something every day for 100 days or do anything created for 100 days, honestly. Mm-hmm. The friend that... Got me into the project. Uh, Becky Margraf, she does sewing projects. This year, she's doing a hundred pom poms, <laughs> and like you say, pom poms, and it's like oh fun, the li- little round thing. But Becky is a wizard, and mm-hmm. she makes pom poms that are that that are like actual containers of popcorn or like bananas. Or she she's using the pom pom as a basis for creating these incredible sculptural things. She's, How do you
0: even make a pom pom? You uh,
1: wrap yarn around a little like plastic device and then trim the edges of it and bind it in the middle and it poofs out and turns into a pom-pom.
0: That sounds so complex.
1: Wizardry. Yes. But for the 100 Day Project a couple years ago she sewed 100 felt faces which were these tiny little square guys and they were you know all they had tiny little button eyes and they were Mm. super cute and all had different characteristics so there were some that were pop culture references like finn and jake from adventure time but then there were also others that were night constellations or uh there was a transparent one that had little pieces of confetti inside it Whoa. that was like sewed out of vinyl i mean she's just a, again wizard wizard <laughs> so i saw these and was like this is really cool i love this idea and i did the 100 day project for the first time in 2016 with mm. an illustration uh and writing it wasn't comics i every day i drew a thing that is important to me like an object from my life that I have a strong relationship to and wrote a little thing about what it means to me they were all done in those tiny pocket notebooks that you get that are like moleskin mm-hmm. you know tuck it in your breast pocket kind of notebooks and I was actually on tour in 2016 for my first graphic novel Baggy Wrinkles and I took the project on the road with me and was posting stuff every day and I really enjoyed it there's something about having the flexibility to do something for three and a half months. That's just small every day that really helps for me. It it helps me understand what the creative process actually looks like Mm -hmm. in that some days are going to feel like garbage and some days are going to feel amazing. Some days it's going to, you know, take two hours and some days you'll be done in 10 minutes Mm -hmm. and all of that is valid. And not every entry entry has to be amazing because at the end, when you look at the cumulative product, like it's not going to, matter mm-hmm. so much and i think for i really do love structured drawing projects in general and when i've done stuff like inktober before i there's still you know 31 days is a long time but it's still short enough that there's pressure of like this all has to look really good yeah you know especially because yeah. people keep raising the bar and like doing amazing yes. stuff it's the same as that culture of people saying just did this little warm-up drawing on my ta- oh and like my the warm-up God. drawing is like t- totally professional fully rendered thomas Kincaid. yes
0: yes yes
1: artwork, painting stuff that you're like, that's not a warm-up.
0: I know, (laughs) I know. Stop making
1: me feel bad. I'm
0: really wondering, like, A, if they're being honest about, like, if it's a warm-up. It's
1: possible, and I don't want to begrudge people their immense skill and uh, practice if that's, like, the point that they're at, that they can just bash something like that out. But for me... The warm-up drawing is like the first pancake or the first waffle right. concept. Like the first one's always going to be a little misshapen, a little mm-hmm. shitty. And sometimes that, you know, the first one might not just be like the first figure that you draw. It may be like the first ten pages of your sketchbook, and mm-hmm. then you finally get to the stuff that's really good. Totally. So like the the hundred day project was a good format for me. I really liked it. And when I came back around to 2017, I wanted to do it again. And had been doing for Inktober the previous two years this series of conversations between me and a little character who represents my inner critic. uh, Mm -hmm. All of my self-doubt and imposter syndrome and anxiety. And I'd done these drawing series for Inktober the first year that I did it. I think I got all the way through the month. The second year I only got six days in and then stuff took over. But I really felt like there was something there in the conversations that I was having. It's generally the inner critic is saying something shitty and the avatar of me is saying something encouraging or contradictory or, you know, they're trying to have a dialogue to Mm -hmm. like figure out how to coexist together. And people really liked that stuff. I think because it's sort of speaking the unspeakable and Mm -hmm. saying, Hey, I experienced this thing and you might not think that I do because I present a very positive, professional, upbeat, go getter kind of attitude on the internet. And I am in general, a very positive person, but it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, not beholden to those voices just as much as anybody else. And it's something we don't talk about very much. That that feeling of becoming an adult, and like nobody is ever actually enough of an adult to know exactly what they're doing. And arguably, if you reach a point in your life as a human being where you're like, "Yep, I've got everything on lock. I know exactly what I'm doing all the time," that's like the hubris before the fall, you right? 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 Or right. the pride before the fall. Um, that it's actually kind of part of being human to not mm-hmm. have it figured out, and we tend to value and focus on stuff that suggests that that's not true right so people like the project I really wanted to explore it more and I ended up doing a hundred days of demon dialogues and drew them these little square single panel comics once a day for three and a half months and people really liked them I gained a ton of followers during the project it was like the first web comic that I've ever done I I put all my stuff online I always hesitate to call myself a web cartoonist because like usually I'll do a one-shot story that's I don't know, 15 to 28 pages, and I'll put it all online at once. I don't serialize stuff. I'll just say, hey, here's my thing. So when people say, oh, you're a web cartoonist, I feel strange about that because there's this sense of web cartoonists or web comics people are people who post updates over time. Right. And that's how you invest. There's like a temporal aspect to how you're telling a story. Mm -hmm. And that was really cool to play with. People got invested in these characters and the story and what was happening, and it wasn't intended to be narrative. Mm Mm-hmm uh given that every day is a different conversation. But mm-hmm. over time it started to turn into something that cumulatively had a storyline.
0: And what I love about it, I was looking at it um the other day is that eventually you get to a point where you're almost like sympathetic towards the little the little demon, mm-hmm. like the little voice. Even though like at first you're like, of course this is just all the evil inside of you that wants yeah. you to fail. But at the end, like, I mean Is it like spoilers? I don't
1: know that it's spoilers. No, I don't think so. I did hear from someone who had found the comic when it was running online and really liked it and stopped reading it online and waited to back the Kickstarter and get the book, which was like a full eight to 10 months after the project finished and then read the whole thing in one sitting. And I was like, that is more willpower than I think I've ever mustered for anything.
0: (laughs) And what a, what a beautiful like show of support though, for like you and your work to show that like like, you are, it's worth waiting for. And it's worth the, the time and like commitment, I suppose. But yeah, I, I don't know. At the end, it's just like you, you have this moment where you, you reach a point of peace Mm -hmm. with like this voice and you reach kind of like a cooperation and you recognize that like others basically everyone else also deals with it and like you can much like anything else within the human experience almost find the beauty in any sort of dark energy that you have within you like the uh, if nothing else, it's the beauty of knowing that it is a more universal experience. Mm-hmm. It's the beauty of knowing that it's like a challenge that you can work through and that you can overcome, and that you know, like at some part in your brain that you are capable of all the things that the other part thinks that you're not. Yeah. And so um...
1: and that trades off. Right. It goes back and forth. And I think that was something that was interesting to encounter is that, yeah, there's the typical ones where the demon's saying you can't do this or you're garbage or you don't have any ideas, blah, blah. And then there are also times when I'm the one who's saying, I can do it all. Like, I'm, mm. I'm going to overcommit myself. I've got all these ideas. And the demon is the one saying, whoa, slow down. Like, yeah. okay, let's let's take some time. And it's a symbiotic relationship because, mm. like, that voice is really just something that wants to keep you safe. And it's like an overprotective parent. You know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not somebody who necessarily wishes you harm. Yeah. It, it I, at least this is the way that it is for me. Uh, yeah. And that's, you know, I fully recognize that some people may have more damaging inner voices that are not so easy to cooperate with. But for me, I've found that the more I interrogate it, the more I find out that either that voice is afraid and actually just wants to be, you know, comforted or paid attention right. to, or like soothed, or the voice wants to, pr- I mean, the voice is still afraid, but wants to protect us. In which case you have to say like, no, I promise I'm doing this responsibly and taking care of myself. And uh, it's a different, way to look at it in the same way that if you look at people who are lashing out emotionally Mm -hmm. a lot of the time you can understand that they are experiencing pain of their own in some capacity and that has limited value if you are on the receiving end of abuse and like it doesn't there's a phrase it explains it but doesn't excuse it if you're on the receiving end of shitty behavior like there are there need to be consequences for that kind of stuff but I think it's also a really valuable trait that we have as human beings to be able to look at other people and understand, even if we can't know the completion of where they're coming from and what they have to deal with, that like there is a complexity to the experience that is maybe more shared than we realize.
0: I think that like it's a responsibility thing. Mm -hmm. It's just like within communities, we have responsibility to ourselves. We have ultimately responsibility, Yeah, but like we can understand where any, any amount of um, darkness comes from within ourselves and within other people. But ultimately, when you are in a community and you are dealing with other people, you have to recognize that they are dealing with a whole array of things that you are not. And by adding to their sorrows or their, their general... Um, the the weight of their existence, then you are doing a disservice. You yeah. Know?
1: And you just don't know. Yeah. And that's the thing so often is that it's not even necessarily prescriptively going around telling people that you know what they're going through. Right. It's creating a culture that encourages people to talk about what's happening to them without fear of censure or judgment. Or- and,
0: and also just like talking about it, but then like, looking for ways to be better. You yeah, know? and to and show it, up for one another, too, yeah.
1: which is a really big part of it.
0: I think that, like, yeah. it. This is all, like, such a, a strange and um kind of, like, amorphous and, like, constantly shifting conversation and kind of area that I think that we're really establishing now, where I, I think at one point there was, like, all of this push to, like, only reprimand people and mm-hmm. then we're reaching a point where we're like wait a second this is equally damaging and so we're like okay rep reprimand and then learn and then change and then like yeah you know fix and and repair and I think that's a beautiful thing like to be human is to is to grow mm-hmm. right like to be human is to like learn from one another and try to reach a place of ultimate like uh sorry i always do this it's like i could i could talk about this shit forever if i wasn't (laughs) on a podcast um
1: but that, i mean it's it seems a little i catch myself doing this that like i veer off into these conversations that feel very esoteric or very like therapy adjacent almost, which makes sense to me because it's a lot of the influence that I was raised with. Like my, uh, my parents are both from the UK. And when Mm. my mom came to the States in the seventies, early seventies, um, she was originally coming out here with her family to all train with the same therapy Institute. And, uh, my uncle became a therapist and Mm. she did not, but like carried that training with her, her whole life. And it was a big impact in my childhood of like how she raised me and the values that I had. And, it's not so different. A friend was saying the other day that it's really apparent to him that art is a kind of therapy for me, and like mm-hmm. I think that's very true. And comics, especially can do they're they're a sort of Trojan horse of uh, emotional or informational efficacy because it looks like something that is kind of cute and approachable and it's like oh funny drawings you know we can internalize them and process them very quickly but they can belie deeper truths Mm. or emotional issues this is the the mouse situation right is that everyone's like oh it's a drawing about animals like how difficult could it be and then suddenly it's the holocaust and you're dealing with all of these really deep difficult issues but in a way that is perhaps not as overwhelming and heartbreaking as it might be had the book been drawn with people um or Joe Sacco does that too I mean you'd look at like the way that he stylizes himself in relationship to the realism of the environments that he's reporting from and it's really there there has to be an in for the reader there has to be some way to make it sort of approachable and you see that a lot I mean there are tons of artists who are doing this right now making comics about these sort of super like relatable viral comics that deal with anxiety and depression a Mm -hmm. lot of the time and I don't think it's a coincidence that those creators get huge followings of young people who are like, Oh, I see myself reflected in this. Right. And sometimes it's sort of making a funny ha out of the crippling, incapacitating weight of anxiety or depression. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes that's all you can do is to say, Oh, well at least this other person also has this and they, they know it well enough to make fun of it. And that, maybe makes it a little safer for me to engage with from that distance. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of cool stuff that comics can do here. And it's something that I've been grappling with as I look at the potential for getting this book out to a wider market, because there are lots of other books about having an inner critic, living Mm -hmm. with an inner critic, vanquishing your inner critic, coexisting with your inner. I feel like most of them trend towards how to silence your inner critic and get on with it. And like, that's not the moral that I came away with is, Oh, this doesn't go away. This is just part of you. Right. And the The thing to do is learn how to coexist with it, not to try and silence it. Because like any emotional experience, you know, repression is very rarely the answer.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that, that's the beautiful thing about where we're at with comics right now Mm -hmm. is that these stories can be told and like told in whatever way they need to be told. Yeah. You know, if you want to put that kind of conversation into a sci-fi novel, or if you want to put it into a really realistic kind of a slice of life novel Mm -hmm. or whatever, like you can do that because of self publishing and because of a lot of small press um, publishing that's popping up. And because of comics conventions, it's just, it's such a broad and open world at this point, where comics are are as broad and as um, as diverse as you know, film or yeah. um, or novels or or books in general.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a lot of that. I mean, you say diverse, and I think it's not a a. Gross, like, oversimplification to say that I think a lot of that also has to do with the number of people who have been raised female coming mm-hmm. into the industry and, like, who have always been here, but whose voices are becoming more and more amplified by the web because, like, those soft skills, you know, with women's work, which is like such a blah kind of phrase, yeah. but like, women are generally raised and socialized to be more emotionally. Perceptive, receptive, like solicitous, you know, to foster those kinds of conversations. And it's absolutely not to say that men are not making comics that deal with those issues, but I certainly see a lot more of that work coming from female identified artists or non binary artists who are speaking to these kind of vagaries of uh, experience that foster deeper emotional dialogue Mm -hmm. between all different kinds of people. But a lot of that comes from. Coming forward and, and setting that precedent and saying, hey, right. we can talk about this because I feel like I've had a, a pretty even split in the audience of people who have responded to this work. It's not you know just women who are saying, oh, I feel seen. It's creating a space where people feel safe, whatever their gender identity or background mm-hmm. to say, yeah, I relate to this. And like it's a it's a human experience.
0: Totally. And it's also a thing where because so many industries have kept women out of mm-hmm. the spotlight or out of the creative um, process. I mean, especially in the world of film and and things like that, how many many Hollywood women directors are there, you know? And it's like how many capable women directors are in the world that could be directing these films. So it's like carving out the niche for themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. there are so many powerful illustrators and comic makers and publishers. I mean, you have like Koyama and you have all these people that are making these spaces and making it, like more powerful than than otherwise, yeah. You know, and totally. it's like I, I really do think that like women and and queer and trans and non-binary um, people are really at the top of the comics world, especially the yeah. indie comics world. Well, right we were now. just talking
1: about this, right? That it, it yeah. can feel like depending on the circles that you run in that uh the le- this is this is like the issue of people saying like oh well do you encounter sexism in the comics comics industry like when i was starting out i was still getting put on women in comics panels sure and this is a little different for me because my whole world is mostly indie comics like mm-hmm. the this the people who got me into making comics were women making web comics in the early 2000s right. and like the people who are my peers are women making comics and so it it I totally understand. I don't want to be the person who says, like, well, I don't see sexism, so it's not a problem because it is a problem. But mm-hmm. the area of the industry that I'm in, I feel very fortunate that there is space for that. Like, I see that world changing because, yes, if you're going for the mainstream, like, fandom based stuff, you know, it can be really grueling and gruesome and petty and shitty. And it's not to say that that stuff doesn't happen in indie comics as well. But uh, I also am just so proud to see all of these folks showing up and owning their space and creating room for each other and supporting one another. And like, that is one of the things that drew me to comics. And it's something that I try to keep an eye on, Mm -hmm. especially if there's, you know, petty stuff going down that it's like, remember we're making this space for each other and And we're bringing in a new generation of people who are going to look at us and back when there were maybe 10 people making web comics, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I got into the scene now, it's overwhelming. There are so many creators, so many options. All the comics classes that I speak to skew majority female. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's a coincidence that, you know, the, those voices are rising to the fore. And it's okay to have corners of the industry that are focused on and dominated by those conversations absolutely because, you know it's about time
0: <laughs> uh, yeah i mean like all the other corners are dominated by like male voices you yeah know, and like generally like cis white dude voices mm-hmm. and so like yeah i i think that that the shift isn't even it's it's not a shift in a certain direction it's like a
1: i feel like with the hand gesture you're making you're about to make like a tree metaphor it, like, it wasn't
0: a tree it okay. was like it was like filling <laughs> i i imagine that like there was like all this like jelly here Uh and that's like the the like male dominated thing and that's all there was for a minute and all of a sudden it's just like and now all this like space it's like an equal amount of jelly yeah it's just like
1: plates of jello
0: of jello and it's like (laughs) man that that was a wild metaphor that i'm not sure how i uh ended up on but
1: I think the comics industry is two equally sized plates of jello. Exactly. Is a really yeah solid.
0: Okay, I did my best, um, <laughs> but but yeah, it's again, it's it's people taking the space that they deserve and that they should have in the first place. Yeah, and like all the all the people doing amazing work in comics right now are what before would be considered like minorities you know yeah and not not only just like in gender but also like a lot of people of color and a lot of it it just offers such a range to tell your experience and like such a you could you can make a comic about anything yeah and the internet is
1: enabling that for so many of us and it's so cool to see especially as someone who like didn't get the internet until I don't know, age nine, maybe, which is still pretty young, right? Like I have a lot of friends who didn't get it till they were in college. Uh, But growing up in that environment, I was just giving an interview the other day and reflecting on how much it meant to be on DeviantArt as a kid yeah. and, you know, to be seeing people who were going through the early stages of the SCAD sequential arts degree and being like, whoa, you can go to college for comic yeah, books? Yeah. And now that's a thing. You know, everyone's got one. Like there's the, the programs at MCAD, there's programs in San Francisco and there's mm-hmm. programs in Vermont, right? There's the Center for Cartoon Studies, which is a grad program just for comics. And it's really becoming super ubiquitous because the the demand is rising from all of these students saying like, hey, we see that this is a thing we can do get us in there like how do we do it and obviously higher education is not even a a prerequisite like i didn't go to school for comics and i'm still working out as a comics person that's fine nobody's ever asked to see my degree like it's a it's an industry where higher education matters very little but some programs can give you practical skills that are going to be really helpful and i i fantasize about it a lot that like part of me really wishes i'd gone to art school yeah and then other parts of me are like yeah but the debt though (laughs) (laughs) listen <laughs> all the money though
0: as a person who went to art school i'm yep. kind of like who but it was also for, for me, for a person like me, I learn best when I'm taught and push yeah. like that, and it was essential. I yeah, do and wish. that's
1: true. Like people, people need to understand their learning style. That's what I tell yeah. kids now is like, look, you don't have to go to school, but if you're a person who thrives on structure and you love the camaraderie of being surrounded by other creative people.
0: And being like push and inspired because yeah. like the people that I met at MCAD and just the that's where I did all my learning mm-hmm. is looking at other people, looking what they're doing and also looking at how hard they're working. Yeah. Um. And, and just kind of like gleaning a lot of like personal philosophy from that Yeah. where I would be like, okay, if I want to make good work, mm-hmm. then I have to be pushing as hard as these people are doing. Yeah. And, it, and it's like, part of that was just so I could keep up. So Mm -hmm. just so I could like be one of them. You know what I mean? And, and that's kind of superficial, but it was also what I needed to experience in order to start making work that I was proud of because otherwise I would have kept making mediocre kind of sloppy stuff and then being like why isn't this working
1: yeah you know and not
0: not putting the time in i do wish that i would have taken comics classes because there are certain things about structuring a comic and structuring the time that you put into a comic Mm -hmm. and and as a comic maker yourself i'm sure that you probably have some insights to this but just like trying to figure out okay like page layout. And then not only page layout, but like, how do I use my time wisely in order to make this comic, um, to see it through? Yeah.
1: Understanding that it's for me, at least it's something that speeds up the further into the process I get. So like the writing takes a long time, Mm -hmm. the penciling and thumbnailing, like the sort of raw planning is like pulling teeth and, you know, it's really, uh, still a a burly a burly task for me but then inking is pretty mechanical and then coloring is really mechanical Mm -hmm. and so it like tends to speed up each stage of the process that I'm moving through and it's good to know that so that you can front load your work time and this is different for every person and I also fully recognize that I even feel weird sometimes calling myself a cartoonist because I don't spend a lot of my time drawing comics Mm. as an independently published, effectively small business owner. I spend 80% of my time running my business and maybe Mm. 20% of my time drawing, maybe like 10 or 15% of my time drawing just to kind of keep drawing and stay in the habit. And then 5% of my time actually drawing comics.
0: What? (laughs) When you say you're like a small business owner, what do you do with the rest of your time, or like what Boy, do you do with your business?
1: organized book tours? Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, like so the the two graphic novels that I've put out into the world have been totally independent. Uh, I've financed them. I mean, independent. I think is a word that goes hand in hand with interdependent, and mm. it's that that's a concept that I've uh, heard Marion call, who's a like nerd musician. Nerd musician is a is a um, She's a singer songwriter with like a strong nerd fan base, but also just a really impressive independent career. She's a huge role model of mine and Mm -hmm. has done an incredible job really rising to the occasion of building an independent fan base and using it to finance her career without a record label, you know, without like any of the sort of traditional trappings of a music career. And I see I just read an essay about her uh, a couple of days ago when I was visiting a friend in Seattle and she described it as saying that she feels like she's on an educational mission to support her own career. Like she has to teach people about how it is that she does what she does in order to get them to support her. Yeah. And then that's the thing that allows her to keep doing what she does. And it's a huge focus for me. So a lot of that business time, that 80 percent is. Recording panels that I'm on at conventions or conversations with other artists writing essays about the finances of independent publishing maintaining spreadsheets of like here are all my expenses from my Kickstarter like if you want to look at the money here's the money if you Mm want to understand why I'm not netting any profit from a $50,000 Kickstarter let me break it down for you right
0: right (laughs) because like people
1: don't know Mm -hmm. nobody knows and and kind of like self-doubt money is one of those things that we're very conditioned to not talk about yes so I get really fired up about this stuff. Obviously <laughs> I'm getting like animated. It's partially that and partially cause it's cold and I'm trying to like move to stay warm. Uh, but I enjoy talking about that stuff because it uh, so clearly helps, you know, to have that context, there was a television presenter from the UK who, who put out a tweet asking people to estimate his annual income. Mm-hmm. And the responses he got were on average six times his annual salary yeah. because he was on TV all the time. So like, of course, he's, he's making it. Right. And this is this dangerous societal assumption of success that's so pervasive and damaging. And for artists especially, there's no model. Like Mm -hmm. at least in software, you can go on some website on the internet and it'll be like a software engineer makes on average between X number and X number of dollars Mm -hmm. and, or like the average middle-class family income in this part of the country is blah. And that's fine. But if you're an independent artist, there's no playbook for that. You know, there are some folks who have tens of thousands of dollars of student debt. So they work a day job to pay down their debt. And then they have like a small art business on the side that brings in play money for them or money that also goes straight to their student loans or like, yeah, it just, (laughs) I'm raising
0: my hand. It all goes right in there, right? You just
1: funnel it into that hole. Um, Um, But then there are folks who support a family, you know, like maybe you've got older parents who don't have health insurance and you've got to pay to support them. Like you just don't know what anyone is dealing with. So on the one hand, it feels a little bit like a fool's errand to talk transparently about this stuff at all because if everyone is super different is there any utility to me saying this is how it looks for me because it probably won't look that way for most other people but it's just it's something it's a data yeah. point people yeah. all the time talk about this stuff and they're really coy about it they'll say oh i did this illustration job and you know i was really well paid or like i got a decent wage or mm-hmm. it was a you know a modest gig or they really under- i really undercharged them but they never say what the numbers are right like we're so afraid of numbers and to be able to talk openly about that stuff means that either people are going to say, whoa, I had no idea you were surviving on that little every year. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people who are going to say like, holy shit, I didn't know a cartoonist could make that much. Totally. And the first time I talked to a friend who had had a year where she had not grossed, but like netted, no wait, she had grossed, but not netted, right? And that's the one that's left over.
0: I have no idea. Yeah. See, you're it's your, talking it's your about gross this minus and, your expenses. Um, okay.
1: So she had grossed over $100,000 in a year. And mm-hmm. that, to me, coming from a not-very-moneyed background, was like, what? Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you're told you're going to live in a cardboard box as right. an artist. Like, that's just where you're going to be forever.
0: And that's what's so frustrating is when people are like, well, the artist's life is just suffering. And I'm like, it shouldn't be. Bullshit. It doesn't have yeah. to be. Like... And, and being transparent about that stuff also can help someone figure out how to make their practice more profitable. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. like,
0: you know, there's so many books and conferences and podcasts and whatever about how to make your business more profitable in the business world. Mm-hmm. But there's none about none of that for art. Artists have to yeah. be self-sacrificial and have to be like, like you said, modest about everything. And it's like, why? Man, if I could make money, if I could, like, be comfortable <laughs> and also nuts? enjoy my life, I would, I would, like, I would want to do that. Like, yeah. I would, I would want to make that, <laughs> that happen. That is an okay
1: thing to want, you right. know? And, like, I think artists are made to feel shameful if someone's, like, it's the same in the nonprofit world, you know? Mm-hmm. There's this sense of, like, if you're working for a nonprofit, you need to be a martyr and not make any money and, like if the folks you're helping are not well off, you need to not be well off too, because otherwise it's, you're a hypocrite. And like, you can't, and I have a friend who, uh, her name's Lillian Karabaic and she runs a radio show called Oh My Dollar. And she kickstarted a book this past year called Get Your Money Together, which is a financial workbook for folks on variable income. And I mean, it's applicable advice for just about anybody. It's not just like, hey, do you not have enough money? Get this budgeting book. But the thing that she was seeing, and especially coming from a not moneyed background and like working in nonprofits herself, was that people were not, writing budgeting books or business advice books for folks on variable income. And increasingly, I can't remember the statistics, but it's like some staggering percentage of the American workforce is going freelance. It's like with the rise of the gig economy and the Mm -hmm. way the world is trending right now, we are looking at a world where for a lot of us, some months, you know, we'll make eight grand and some months we'll make negative $100. (laughs) Like it's just really hard to predict. And it's so difficult to know how to budget for that stuff if people don't teach you. And it's a really invaluable resource. I highly recommend it. Uh, Get Your Money Together by Lillian Karabaic. And she's just a a goldmine of good practical information. But it's funny that you say there are all these podcasts about making your business more profitable, but none for artists. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where the the usefulness lies is a getting artists to conceptualize themselves as small business owners right,
0: totally. which is
1: very different if you're starting a restaurant or something uh you have to have a business plan right because mm-hmm. you're probably going to have to take out loans and you got to prove to somebody that you know what you're talking about but as an artist most creators that i know who have backed into a, a situation where they're making okay money are waking up five years down the line after hustling to make their art and going oh shit i'm a business Oh, God, right. what do businesses do? Oh, what's an EIN? Oh, how do I do my taxes? Oh, geez, I have to get an accountant. And if you think about that stuff from the get-go, you don't have to start off with an accountant and like payroll and everything else, right. but it's helpful to just know what the options are and that mm-hmm. when your business starts gathering steam, you can make those decisions a little more proactively rather than being constantly reacting to what the world is throwing at you. And, I, and it's not for everybody. I should say, like I get really excited about this stuff. It turns out I love running a business right. as much as I hate that it eats up so much of my time. Uh, I love the strategy of it and the the tweaking and the fine tuning and figuring out how to make something that is going to support me without my having to hustle for every paycheck. You know, mm-hmm. building a stable base that's going to bring in money every month. I've never had a regular day job. Like I've always been freelance and. Patreon has been a huge boon for me because very slowly I've built a fan base of people who are effectively paying me the closest thing to a salary I've ever had in my life. And it's incredible. And it's arguably more stable because there are so many people coming together to make that happen. It's not just one patron who might decide one day, "Eh, you know, I don't really want to give Lucy any money anymore. And then pull it and suddenly I have no money and I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Anyway, all, I, all of this is to say I get excited about this stuff. I recognize that there are tons of artists who just want to say, look, I like drawing. Leave me alone. Mm-hmm. I would like a publisher or a publicist or a an agent, somebody to take all of this off my plate. Mm-hmm. And you probably get a lot more art done that way, too. I but. Think,
0: yeah. <laughs> I, I, I imagine that it also helps you kind of subconsciously take yourself and your work more seriously, too, mm-hmm. in terms of like, I mean, obviously, all artists I think probably take their work seriously and yeah. themselves seriously as an artist, but in terms of like its value and your time value and mm-hmm. things like that, if you do kind of actually lay out a groundwork for how it monetizes, yeah, like in numbers. I imagine that you start to think about your, your work a little bit differently. The the same way you'd think about the time you spend at any sort of like day job or, Mm -hmm. you know, totally punching in, punching out.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's an interesting, tricky thing that anyone who's freelance can relate to is Mm -hmm. that with the internet, you know, you can, and it's very true on this tour, I can be working anywhere, Mm -hmm. which means I should be working all the time by by the demon's voice, that's right, like, you right. know, you should be always working. And it's noticeable to me that the times that I go off the grid are often the times that I'm most productive creatively because mm-hmm. I can just focus on drawing. And I feel like it's telling that when I have nothing else on my plate, I draw because it's what I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And what's dangerous about the running your own business thing is that the running your own business part can feel like the most important thing on your plate, which mm. is there's always more you could be doing to streamline your business, to reach out to people, to promote on social media. Yeah. And it's really hard to prioritize making art, which feels like a, a secondary tertiary, you know, quintu- yeah. goal in the face of that, because it's like, well, how important is the art really when what I've got to be doing is optimizing my metrics and dealing with <laughs> SEO and do it. And so like for me, it's very difficult to prioritize my own work, uh, even though that's the thing that my career is built on. yeah. So it's weird to say. And yeah. And I, I don't know if there's an easy percentage there to say where, what it is that actually brings people in to support me. Cause some of it obviously has to do with my creative output, but a lot of it has to do with the other stuff. Like mm-hmm. the being a person on social media, the public speaking, the podcast, the, all this other stuff. And I like doing that stuff. I'm a theater kid. I like performing. It's, the part of being a cartoonist that I don't enjoy is sitting alone in a room for weeks on end yeah. and just grinding. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's fun to do for short periods of time. I wish we
0: could just like snap, and then we'd have art, and then we could just talk. Yeah, and that was and just, just gab like
1: the rest of the time.
0: Exactly. I, <laughs> I don't
1: know. I mean, I love drawing, and like I I love. Holding up and working on a creative project and getting consumed by it. But it's just a balance and it's good to think about as a – for me, it's like a seasonal occupation. Totally. There are times of the year when I'm just going to be head down working and there are times of the year where I get to do this and travel and talk and see people.
0: That sounds fun. That sounds like kind of an ideal kind of balance. It sounds
1: very balanced when I say it out loud. It doesn't feel like that.
0: Sure, (laughs) sure. I think travel also is such an important thing because if you – Maybe this is just like the the Midwestern like s- seasonal depression like Minneapolis thing where right. you get holed up in a certain place for too long and all of a sudden it's like all of these subconscious little gremlins come out and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like even making work work is hard. Yeah. Whereas when you start traveling, at least in my experience, that's when all of my energy comes out. And I'm like, Yeah, I'm on like if, if I even, like, travel a little bit, it's, like, I can write a bunch, I can draw a bunch, if I'm on the Megabus to Chicago, it's, like, I am full of ideas, you know, yep. I, I wrote, or, like, I, I sketched like, half of a comic, I, I've never made a comic, I really want to make comics, I've been, like, trying to make it happen, but it was so easy for me to do it when I was, like, in that, like, transitory space. Yes. And I find also that a lot of people write comics or make work about being in transit. Mm. And I think it's because it's inherently uh, introspective and you're kind of just activated in a creative way. Yeah. And there's a lot of
1: research on that, that like, if you're in a new environment, your perception of time alters radically and your engagement with your environment really changes. Wow. And so there, there are some conflicting schools of thought about this, that like, arguably you could say the secret to living a long life, the amount of time we're given is the same, but the way that we experience that time could be altered by Noticing, right? It's the art yeah. of noticing. And mm-hmm. I don't know that these are actually contradictory, but I think for most people, when you travel, novelty causes you to notice, right? Like yeah, you Look totally. at buildings in a different way. Even coming downtown into Minneapolis, I was aware of my, my hostess who's driving the cars, like lived here for 10 years and was pointing out landmarks, but kind of it's, it's every day for her. And I'm like, wow, look at that building. Wow. Look at that thing. Wow. Yeah. Look at that thing. And I was thinking about how I tend to relate to Portland having been there for about 10 years. And I don't necessarily look at it with the same kind of noticing eye that I made, I might've done when I first moved there. So if the act of noticing is the thing that elongates time for most people stretches, our perception of time dilates it, then arguably for some people that would mean traveling all the time is the way Mm -hmm. to kind of just keep your brain in a constant state of new stimulation. But from a Buddhist perspective, uh, mm. there is this sense of there is so much to notice in any moment. Yeah. And so arguably, it's not necessarily about novelty, right? For for a lot of uh, monastic practitioners, you're staying in the same place and doing the same thing day in and day out. I was
0: actually just looking into Taoism recently mm-hmm. um, and really resonated with that, actually. because. Yeah again, not to always talk about the winter, but this winter in Minneapolis was just brutal. And when the spring came around, I really wanted to make a point of like appreciating my environment and like appreciating all of those like tertiary details that I wasn't noticing. And so Mm -hmm. I started taking walks and I started like leaving the house. And when I left the house, I would like really try to look yeah it's like i i didn't even know that i had like birch trees on my street <laughs> and then i noticed that and i'm just like that's a nice detail and
1: naming uh, things too yeah. is a really big deal like that's something that uh i've encountered in just a lot of different places recently i've been super into robert mcfarlane who's a nature writer and he has a, a wonderful book called landmarks which is basically just a, a collection of words for the, often like archaic or little used british words uh for geographic features so Mm. it's divided by types of environments mountains lakes rivers oceans and there are all of these regional dialectic terms for uh icicles right in some places they're called ickles and in other places they're called aqua bobs and in other places you know they just so fun clinkerbell i think is another one that's really (laughs) lovely and the the word that really got me that I was like, yeah, I have to read this book uh, was, you know, if you have a hedgerow or like a, a some kind of foliage that a bunny or like a cat or something walks through on the regular and they wear kind of a little hole mm-hmm. in the hedge. It's called a smuse,
0: a smuse, a smuse, S-M-U-S-E,
1: S-M-E-U-S-E. Is Weird.
0: Serious. Who decided that? I don't know. <laughs> uh,
1: but it's a common enough thing, right? Britain being dotted with hedgerows every which way, that there is a word for it. And yeah. when I read that in a, an article or an interview somewhere with mcfarlane I was like, oh my god,
0: get this book. I mean, life. that sounds a lot better than hedgehole. Which, yeah, like, hedgehole is, is like kind would, of a
1: derogatory term.
0: <laughs> it sounds like it. You call such someone, a fucking
1: hedgehole man. <laughs>
0: for real. I I'm going to start using that. Yeah, actually, just bring in it my day to day.
1: So yeah, Um, there's a, and I think it was also Verlin Klinkenborg's book, maybe several short sentences about writing that I just finished reading, and I I think it was in there that he's talking about the power of naming things specifically. Well, that's... Because if you're just like, I left my house and there were some trees, like... That's okay writing, but if you say, I left my house and watched the birch trees, you know, or the poplars or the alders or the aspens, like, there's a very particular experience that's conjured by that.
0: This is really interesting because I've been reading books about mysticism um and a lot of mystical thinking is actually about deconstructing hmm. categorization mm. and so it's the exact opposite yeah. it's taking it's taking away words for things so that you can experience things anew wow which is really like
1: which goes back to the unfamiliarity of encountering yeah. a space and really noticing what's in it
0: and and i think that like it's it's kind of a person to person thing mm-hmm. i i tend to like to exist in the um, in kind of the subconscious realm. I like to exist um, trying to re reinterpret things and trying to like relearn things. Yeah. But some people really like to like hyper learn things to be rooted and, like, to like, to like really get into the tiny details of something. And mm-hmm. I think it's just mm-hmm. like a person person thing, yeah. just like any sort of spirituality appeals to s- certain people in a different kind appeals to different people.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I read this wonderful biography of John Cage, the composer totally. who's really known for, you know, minimalist and silent and dissonant and strange music. And he had a huge history with Zen Buddhism and mm-hmm. uh, it was called where the heart beats by Kay Larson. And cool. it's a great book. For, I mean, I didn't know very much about Cage. I was not necessarily like a fan of his music or anything, but there was so much in the book just from the perspective of talking about what various spiritual traditions can bring to the creative practice. And it was something that was obviously for Cage, the right thing at the right time that Mm -hmm. he was like, Whoa, I'm interested in silence and noticing and the spaces between things. And Zen Buddhism is all about this. And like there was a beautiful synergy there that really informed his work and his practice. And it is, yeah, I mean just art making is noticing whether through the through the lens of abstraction or through the lens of specificity and rooting are really compelling and it's one of the things just to bring it back around to where we are that I found great about going to Iceland with light gray was mm. that it was uh, a place that I had never been before mm-hmm. and a place where decisions were not necessary you know the the itinerary was set like the food was taken care of and that's such a gift. It's a simple thing, but I mean, it's not, it's logistically very complex, but it's a. It, it feels like a small statement to say, oh my God, if I don't have to think about what I'm eating every day, my whole life is different. My whole creative Absolutely. practice opens up because making art and noticing things is also a series of decisions and decision-making is exhausting and we have a limited capacity for that. And to have such a huge part of that process taken off your chest is just like, what yeah to not have to think about it and and in iceland too i found that because i was unfamiliar with the language there was also something that i did not know names for things uh, i didn't really know where we were even nor mm-hmm. was i particularly concerned with that like not in the sense of iceland could have been anywhere but just from a traditional place finding google maps dot locator kind of perspective, it was like, I, it doesn't really matter. Like, look at this rock, look at this waterfall. Like it's right in front of me and it's reflected in my sketchbook, which is the thing that I ended up bringing back from the trip and and publishing as a mini comic and, or a mini, as a sketchbook, as a booklet, uh, is that my sketchbooks don't look like that. Usually, you know, people would look through and say like, wow, these watercolor paintings and all this stuff. Like it's so precise. And that was totally a product of being in a space that, called for that type of attentiveness and obviously the the landscape is beautiful and so Mm -hmm. it's very compelling to paint and draw because there's just so much to look at but what if like what would it look like to bring that sort of attentiveness to minneapolis
0: (laughs) big question yeah i've found that especially when i get to spend a significant amount of time like that in an environment that is so powerful Mm -hmm. it's just like overwhelming peace Hmm. I don't know. Did you you feel that when you were in that space?
1: Yeah, and a lot of that honestly was to do with the fact that I had just wrapped up my Kickstarter campaign to print Hundred Demon Dialogues, and Kickstarter is like a very high-intensity, very social media-heavy period of time. And it was this like spasm of, sort of wretched pulling myself away from it i was like on the phone with my fulfillment center in the airport waiting to board my flight saying like guys i don't know if this is gonna work like it's how are we gonna get the books from point a to point b and i was really fortunate to be working with people who knew their shit and were yeah. prepared to step up for me but there's this panic of like i can't disconnect like i can't let myself go from this and when i turned on my autoresponder. I love the autoresponder. Uh-huh. It is my favorite thing in the world to have something that on my behalf will tell people, Hey, I'm going to set a reasonable expectation here. I'm gone for the next while. That's how you you're know you're in business
0: me. when you have an auto <laughs> It
1: turns out anybody can do it though. If you're a person like me who's, you know, gets a lot of email yeah. and struggles to get through it every day, because if I did that, like that's all I would do. Um, and I have to do other things with my life then it it just absolves me of some of the guilt of walking around worrying that people are expecting a reply. It just mm-hmm. sets a reasonable expectation. And that's arguably more professional than it's, it's unrealistic to expect that someone can just reply to emails, you know, in the moment every Absolutely. day, unless their job is answering emails. And I've worked with people whose job that is. And it's incredible because they are efficient as fuck. And it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but for indie business owners you know who are also artists who are also traveling it's just a huge boon to say you know what i'm off the grid and And that's like like, don't come for me
0: (laughs) that's another thing about just like respecting art and being an artist as a legitimate career and Mm -hmm. a legitimate business is that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect someone who is working a nine-to-five if they're on vacation to answer your emails. Yeah. like you I just mean, some companies
1: do, do, and those are unhealthy work environments. Yeah, Of course. And uh, there's also a fear of, like, that your fans will somehow turn against you if you tell them that you're taking time to recharge or derive yeah. inspiration from a landscape. And I'm slowly coming to trust that the people who support my work support me going out and experiencing the world because so much of the work that I do is, I mean, almost all of it is autobiographical, experiential, travel-based, you know. And those experiences need to happen if I am going to have yeah, they comics from it too. <laughs> exactly. So sure. if I say like, Hey guys, I'm going to, and I've thought about this, you know, just saying like, I'm going to take a six month social media hiatus mm-hmm. and just try this out and go nuts and go dark for, I mean, maybe not so, you know, six months is really dramatic, but if I were to say like, take a month off at the mm-hmm. end of the year and just be really present for a period of time and then be intentional about how I add that contact back into my life. I don't think the people who support me would make a big fuss
0: I think they would be jealous. I think they would say, wow, I wish I could do that because it's so hard to disconnect. Yeah. It is. I, I think about that all the time. And I know for a fact that disconnecting would be such a beneficial thing mm. and would help my creative practice. It would help me in general. Yeah. But it is so hard. I mean, it's a true addiction. Yeah, like, it absolutely it's,
1: is. And it's built to be that way. Yeah. And it's important to recognize that. There was a, a good essay that went around from a former technology ethicist at Google, which is like a thing that they had. I don't know. They they took that whole don't be evil clause out of their company charter. So now like, right now they're Uh, just evil, (laughs) just evil. evil, but to have a design ethicist who is in charge of saying, you know, Hey, maybe let's design this to be not quite as awful or like not quite as addictive is tricky and there are things you can do right like i've turned off push notifications for i don't have badges or alerts or anything i do have social media on my phone because like i'm an artist and i have to take photos of my work and upload it and share it and that's a lot of what i'm engaged in doing on the day-to-day especially for a tour like this Mm -hmm. that's self-founded and you know i'm i'm largely working independently to make sure that that stuff gets out the door uh people need to know where I'm going to be and what's happening. And the way that that happens is social media. So it's hard when your livelihood is tied to it. I think it's one thing if you're like a casual consumer of social media and you're going to say like, Oh, I'm going to do a digital detox. But for artists so much of the time, it's like not only are we prey to social media addiction in the ways that normal humans are wired to be, we're also tying our livelihood and in some cases our self worth to it. And so walking away from that is like, what am I without my internet following hundred
0: percent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also strange because you know that once you disconnect like that, you're doing so almost in service to the reconnection Mm, where eventually you are going to get back and be like, look at all this work I made. It's, it's a very, very strange phenomenon. Yeah. Um, at the, it's beautiful because it has really revolutionized the way that artists can be present and like you said like just having eyes on your work is and
1: connect with people amazing yeah Yeah, because that is a real question like what am i without my followers you know or my my fans or my friends these are like people who have this sort of parasocial relationship with me but it also means that i can like amanda palmer my way through this tour and just tweet and be like hey I'm in Asheville. Like, yeah. I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. Who's got me? Totally. And then, you know, I, people know people and they'll contact folks and things will happen. And I it's just, magical.
0: I just met two people within the last like week and a half that I've only known through the internet. Mm-hmm. Never met them. And we are just like, yeah, cool. And we just like chatted like we knew each other. Yeah. And now I have connections in like New York, you know, and I, I've i had connections in Chicago. And like, it, it is this moment where you just know that you're connected Wherever you go, or yeah. like, I think that's the goal is like yeah. definitely like creating a uh, at least a nationwide, if not international community mm-hmm. that like actually cares about you. And it's
1: funny that you're saying like you're connected wherever you go because mm-hmm. that's the issue of like, oh, social media follows you everywhere and you could always be working. But what we're talking about is like taking that connection and translating it into a real face-to-face. Genuine yeah, genuine like, and those, those relationships that you have on Twitter with someone that like, oh, you follow each other. And, you know, you fave each other's tweets mm-hmm. and you don't maybe even interact directly that often. But to be peripherally aware of somebody moving through the world is to build up some degree of familiarity with them. And so it means that when you meet in person, you're just a little closer to being on yeah, that and... footing of intimacy. And the question is, like, how do we, even with people that we don't meet through the Internet, like sidestep the niceties of saying, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Yeah. How are you doing? Oh, mm-hmm. great. Okay, cool. <laughs> and like not having anything to say because you're not willing to dig into the meat and like asking people it's the thing honestly that that when I did my first book tour was really difficult is that I noticed immediately that when I would tell people I was going on tour they would always say wow congratulations god that's so that's such a big deal and it seemed to me that their impression of what going on tour meant was very tied to this like arena rock star right. mentality, which even for rock stars, it's grueling as fuck. Yeah, like, it's you're sleeping cool. in a van, like you're <laughs> you know exhausted every night. Like it's you nowhere have to perform near.
0: every day, right. which sounds like. A nightmare.
1: Yeah. It's just so <laughs> grueling. So for, and for authors, I guess a lot of the time it's what uh, this guy, Steve Reichlin, who I was in conversation with the other day was saying this, this cookbook author, who's like a very traditionally published successful dude, his publisher pays for the tour. They put him up, they buy hotels. There's a driver. Like, you know, it's very, be um, sick. yeah, it'd be <laughs> great. I would love it if it was like that, but also I love it that it's like this, that mm. I get to set the agenda. I'm traveling alone. Like I get to make all the choices and I love it, but I recognized that when people were thinking, you know, wow, Lucy's going on tour. She's made it. Mm -hmm. And it was like, no, I'm probably going to lose money on the tour experience. Like I'm going to get sick at some point in a foreign city and like feel really bad about myself and be, you know, hacking up along on a hostel bed somewhere. (laughs) And like, you know, I'm going to eat like trash and I'll be exhausted and all this other stuff. But meeting people is so important to me Mm -hmm. and getting to, to see other folks in person and just solidify that connection a little and say like, Hey, both for me and for them, I'm a real person.
0: I think also the vacuum of the web. I mean, I say vacuum because it's strange because you're throwing stuff into it and it's just kind of like throwing stuff into a pit. And And you don't know
1: who's seeing it. Yeah. Even if people fave it, you're like, did you read this? I can't tell. Do you
0: care? (laughs) It's, it's like, it's like you're throwing stuff into a well and there's someone like, there's a bunch of people at the bottom of the well. They're like, nice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, and you have to be like,
0: Hey, nice. And it, and it just doesn't feel the same as when you're actually like you down give...
1: in the well with them. Yeah,
0: yeah, I <laughs> yeah. Bet. Or this tour is me climbing Maybe...
1: into the well.
0: <laughs> Maybe they're climbing up from the well. I don't know. Maybe Who you knows? meet in the
1: middle and you're like doing the chimney yeah. hold like oh, rock that's, climbers. That's cool. Yeah, but then you don't have any spare hands to like pass stuff back and forth. But you're I just, just kind didn't... of passing
0: it by mouth. But it's <laughs> it's so genuine and it I. I haven't sold my work very much in public at at this point in my life, but I I did the other week and it was such a different feeling to have people actually come up to me and be like, this is beautiful work. And, and to have like $5. Yeah. Like like, literally, (laughs) yeah. Like paying me in cash for my, are you kidding? It's a
1: huge rush. And
0: it's that alone just made sense to me. Yeah. Just throwing it onto the web and like getting a handful of likes or it's like my friends who are are much more follower wealthy Mm -hmm. than I am and they get like a ton of likes, but it becomes vapid.
1: Well, it's like, does that mean anything? And I think we're all engaged in these different types of community building that uh, convey meaning in different ways. You know, right, you're like building sure. up goodwill by putting stuff on the internet at large and sharing things on Instagram and, you know, garnering followers. But then like, you're going to make an ask at some point down the line, whether that's a Kickstarter or a tour or, you know, a new book coming out with a major publisher. And you're going to say, Hey, if you've appreciated the stuff that I've given you for free, kick me back show a little up. something like, for yeah, sure. show up for this. And that is the scariest part is to say, okay, I know you say you like this, but like, do you like it enough to come out in your city on a Tuesday night and hang out with me? Exactly. Like, will you come to my party? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what's really freaky about it is that uh, it is kind of like throwing a birthday party and inviting the internet, and then being like, "Please come, please yeah. come hang out at my please party." Please come,
0: and then also please treat me like a human being. Yeah, and like, it's
1: so contradictory. Like mm-hmm. the uh, to to say, you know. Um, I'm a real person, I'm available, be my friend, let's hang out. And then also to say like, oh, I'm an individual with boundaries and like we can Mm -hmm. hang out to a certain point, but I'm not going to be your new bestie. And how do you, I I tend to be a pretty open person, but also we can all only sustain so many close bosom buddy friendships. Mm -hmm. And it's a weird thing to try and maneuver that of, there are people who I know who are like, have been fans of my work, but then we kind of hit a point where I'm like, I I think we'd really get along. Like, can we we be friends? And I don't know what to call that space where you're like, a fan friend because you don't want to call somebody this is my fan so and so like that's weird but you can say like this is my friend we connected over my work and now like we're buddies and it's just there are so many uh it's so easy to place people on different kinds of power hierarchy pedestals on the internet and assume you know things about them i do it all the time and like i'm an artist and i still assume that other people are doing fine when they might not be doing fine right and the thing that's beautiful about this tour is that Because of the content of the book that I'm touring with, which is very much about being honest about when things are going hard... Uh, it's totally fine for me to show up to a room full of people and be like, man, you guys, I am bummed today. Yeah, <laughs> I am really sad. Like yeah. I missed my train to Seattle on the very first tour stop and was 20 minutes late to my first event. Like I thought I was going to get there with hours to spare. And instead I missed my train, had like a crying breakdown in the bathroom oh, no. in the Amtrak station because I was like, ah, I can't do anything right. And then I got the next train. And my buddy who was doing the event with me, like picked me up from the station and we rushed over to the venue and we were maybe 20 minutes, half an hour late, which all told was not the end of the world. It was fine. But to be able to show up into that room and have everyone be like, yay! Cause they'd all be <laughs> following on Twitter, you know, they knew what was going on. Yay. And just to like be a mess and have that be okay mm-hmm. was so refreshing because there's a lot of stuff that happens when people perceive that you are what they think as think of as successful. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, are you? Like, what does that even mean? Success is different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And to go out and connect with people in person and to be able to just be honest about what's happening is like, oh, that's actually what I want. I don't want packed stadiums of people. I would like 20 folks in a room that I can sit down with and be like, hey, what's it like over there? (laughs)
0: <laughs> and I think that's also just the beauty of being an artist, especially, like, a comic maker or some sort of narrative...
1: Storyteller. Storyteller
0: yeah. is that so much of it is so personal. It comes from, like, mm-hmm. intrinsically a place within yourself. Yeah. Even if you're doing fantasy work or whatever, it's still a part of you. Those that characters you are,
1: are you. Yeah, Absolutely. That yeah,
0: you're, that you're sharing. Yep. Um, and so I think that people approach it with, well... I say this tentatively. Usually it's a lot m- easier to just be a human being and to be honest when you are like present like that. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I mean, yeah, sometimes. And then other times like being face to face with people, it's harder for us because we have to put on that polite veneer sure. of being a person. And so I I don't know. I don't know whether I agree with it or if it's harder for me yeah. in person to say honestly like I'm having a hard day. And today. It's,
0: <laughs> it's also that, again, that thing about boundaries and about like comfort levels because being honest and open about Mm -hmm. your your stuff doesn't mean that someone can just come up and like immediately think that they know you yeah which is hard and it's like obviously none of us are are trying to be standoffish none of Mm -hmm. us are trying to like be like don't talk to me but again, it's you're meeting a person. Yeah. You're 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 meeting a person who does work, and you admire their work. And sometimes people, uh, a lot a lot of people talk on Twitter about people being like, what's the word? Like friendly rude, you know, to them. Yeah. And that, there's like, this
1: familiarity and jokingness that like friends can get away with, and non friends cannot, because like the internet is so hard to perceive subtext around that stuff. It's better to just be really nice. Yeah.
0: Right. And like. <laughs> Be nice in general. Yeah, if you're, uh, if you're nice be good to other people, yeah, especially <laughs> to people that you admire or that you care about. Um, yeah, it's it's gonna be better. Like, like intrinsically, you're gonna have a better time with this person if you're yeah. just kind to them, right? Um, and and as a maker, you know, I I think it's so much more appreciated when you know that someone doesn't have an agenda. That someone just genuinely appreciates you and what you do.
1: Yes. And like just it's so rare that you get an email from somebody that's just like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I really enjoy your work and you've had a positive impact on my life. And like, thank you for participating in the Internet in this way. Have a great day. Bye. Like an email that demands nothing in return is like a magical unicorn princess that comes but once a decade and (laughs) And it's always somebody wanting something you know even if it's just like I really appreciate your work I was wondering if you could give me some advice and like I love doing that and also I can't do it all the time and I try to make myself very available online for that kind of stuff because I think it's important and then also at a certain point you have to kind of shut the gate and say like okay I can't answer questions all day which is why I record stuff honestly because if I can make a blog post and just point people to the post and say like hey you can read this. Like there are lots of resources out there mm-hmm. and I've written something specifically about Kickstarter or about this or about that. Cause there's a lot of people who need help putting up Kickstarters or running a Patreon or all that stuff. And the information is out there more than ever on the internet, but we just like hearing it from a person.
0: Yeah. Especially so. a person that we feel like maybe we're closer to the level of like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes if, if it's either a person who's massively successful. If it's like Kyle T Webster, if it's Mm -hmm. like someone who, who is like the name, then it's a little bit harder to think that they know, like our specific struggle. Yeah. Whereas like, I don't know if, if we have someone that we've been following for a while and again, is like a little bit more open around us about like their, their life and their times and whatever, then we feel like that advice is a little bit more accessible.
1: I've had so many people too, who tell me that they, um, haven't reached out to talk to creators that they admire just to tell them that they admire them and appreciate their work because they assume that that person is inundated with those kinds of messages. Mm -hmm. And that's just really not true. It's something I've been trying to practice a lot more in my own life is telling people when I appreciate them. And that is like in person, you know, it's like talking to your friends and your family and your parents. It's like that. Tell everybody you love them. And if you don't love them, tell them you appreciate them. And if you don't appreciate them, don't say anything at all. You know, just just say Hey, You're doing Hello. all right. Hi. Hey. Good morning. <laughs> Good.
0: It is you are alive. Good day to um, you, sir,
1: or and, and or madam, and or other I, I, pronoun.
0: <laughs> I think my my f- yeah my favorite thing to say right now is like you're appreciated. Like, yeah. Just no doubt like, like I see you. Yeah.
1: I see you working hard. It, it's we were just talking about this before the podcast of like the work that James does to put Light Grey on the internet and on the map shout
0: out shout out to james uh, i know you're not here right now but you do a great job
1: yeah your uh, your shadow is in the room with us yeah at one of these computers probably and we appreciate you the
0: printing computer that it's we're right very there, close yeah.
1: to i can just see the the stress emanating off it and like as somebody who spends a lot of time and energy putting a visual presence out into the world it takes so much work and it's so mm. hard to feel like you're actually making a difference but Lots of people see that work and they appreciate it. And I, I've i had folks like tweet at me after events and say, I am really like my demon is telling me not to send this tweet because it assumes that you have better things to do with your time. But like that was really helpful. Thank you. It's like, God, what a shitty demon yeah. to tell you that like this person who really needs... To hear from you. I mean, it's not, that, like, a, it's not a life and death situation. I don't want to say, like, I need to hear from the internet or else I don't exist. Because mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a healthy position to be in. But it, it just, like, fills me up every time I get to connect with people in that way. And it's not always rainbows and sunshine. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be somebody saying, like, you're the best. I love your work. It's, like, even if it's somebody reaching out to say, hey, like, I'm in a shitty place right now. And this is helpful to yeah. read or even just I'm in a shitty place right now. Yeah, Let me just tell you about it. Like, I don't know. It, it brings this sort of connection that is incredibly humanizing. And that's the thing that keeps me making work. Mm-hmm. And I try to catch myself. It's happening a lot on this tour when it comes to reaching out to creators who I'm like, this person is way too famous to want to talk to me. Like I'm just some schmuck, you know, they wouldn't want to be on my podcast or hang out with me or put me up if I'm coming to their town. And like the worst thing that happens is somebody says no.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and chances are if they say no, it's probably not, like personal a personal
1: vendetta it's yeah, just they're busy or like they can't
0: yeah or yeah they they just yeah maybe don't know you that well but right. it doesn't mean they will never know you
1: no no you no know? no and and yeah it means that like if you get in touch with them in the future or maybe if they reach out again or like they see your work somewhere down the line they'll be like oh yeah that gal reached out to me about doing a podcast like right on that's cool mm-hmm.
0: and so i don't know it's it's also interesting because i feel like sometimes we see people that we see as successful or whatever as having a different capacity for remembering people I don't Mm. know if if you've ever like I I don't know I'm just thinking about this right now but it's like I, I go to a lot of shows and I always wonder like you know especially when people approach the band or whatever afterwards I imagine those people like the people in the band remember the people that approach them just by face you know
1: i remember people by face sometimes yeah. and we have like a very particular kind of interaction mm-hmm. but also you know sometimes i don't or sometimes i'm just like really frazzled i thought yeah, that uh, a guy whose class i had gone and lectured at from my alma mater who came to my book launch party was a director i had worked with in my hometown in high school I because see. they look kind of similar and i just like couldn't place him and so i was like john Deal. What are you? What are you doing here? Like, why yeah. are you at this event? And he's like, da- Daniel. My name is Daniel. I was like, Oh, of course. I'm sorry. Ah, wow. Wow. It's just. It's so. Um challenging and embarrassing and I think for a lot of us like if we appear standoffish it's often just that we're very nervous that we're gonna forget somebody (laughs) and so the fans who come up who are just like hey Lucy there's no reason you'd remember me but like my name is X we met at this show I brought you this thing or like I was dressed as this character it's so helpful because then I can contextualize it and not look like a huge jerk because I do remember people A lot of the time but you know names and stuff it's just like it's really hard names
0: (laughs) names are not gonna happen i mean even even just somebody's
1: work and like
0: like coffee shop i'm like half the regulars that come and i'm like I know you. I care about you. I, I, mean, I like the fact you At least if you run their card, in.
1: you can like cheat and. Yeah. Well, true. I don't know though. That's that's dangerous because like if someone's changed their name or maybe they don't like going that's by true. it's like it's yeah. not a good thing to assume and it's probably just in most cases this is something that I think all of us are trying to get better at is just asking. Yeah. You know, if there's somebody that you're like. I don't have a read on this person's pronouns. Rather than guessing, you can just be like, hey, what pronouns do you prefer using? Or like, hi, my name's Lucy. I use she, her pronouns. Like, It's something that I'm still working on, but I'm yeah. trying to get better at because it's a small thing that can make a really big difference
0: totally the uh, in in that situation the worst that's going to happen is like a cis person is uncomfortable
1: which like (laughs) is fine (laughs) which is
0: they will get over it yeah and the the best thing that will happen is that you will see someone who is probably not seen by most of society yeah and so
1: yeah it comes back to that sensation of being seen which is so like it's a phrase i keep mulling over and it's largely the, the phenomenon that I want to talk about in the podcast that I'm thinking about launching that it's... I want to talk to people who aren't just in comics but like folks who are operating in spaces where there's some degree of performative vulnerability mm. happening. And I don't say performative in like a falsehood kind of way. I mean in like a an intimate, you know, a person is having an emotional connection with you through the medium of your work, whether that is in person on a stage or through the page or through audio, like there's something happening there.
0: That's very interesting.
1: I am really interested in it right now. It's like taking up a huge amount of my brain space.
0: (laughs) I mean, I I also think that so many of the makers right now are in their Mm twenties. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm 23. I have a lot of friends who are 23, 24, um, et cetera. And I think that as, as we have to project ourselves as professionals and as makers and, like you said, as vulnerable, we're also kind of figuring out a lot about um, just the social life. Like yeah, literally like being our, a person. Yeah. And also you're
1: still changing pretty dramatically. Right. I mean, like up until, I don't know, developmentally when it all stops, but like 28, 26, 28, 28, like somewhere in your upper 20s is when your brain becomes far less plastic and like a lot of that development finally slows down. But I was just talking about this with uh, my dear friend who who is a medical medically studying type person Mm -hmm. and knows a lot of stuff about the human brain, the human body. And it's always fascinating to hear about. And we were talking about this, that like getting out of college, you know, there's still so much that is solidifying and obviously, hopefully you're changing for the rest of your life. You're Mm -hmm. not going to just hit stasis at 28 and then like stay that way until you die. But even just talking about, you know the hormones and the fluctuations and like the changes that are happening like on a really physiological level. Uh, it's it's a lot to ask somebody to forge a singular professional identity mm-hmm. right out of college and know what they're talking about. And like, I've gone through. There was a tweet going around the other day that said, how many people have you been?" in your life Mm. don't give us any explanation just answer with a number and you know it's you can you can parse that a lot of different ways but I think a lot of people have a very clear understanding of what that question means which Mm -hmm. is like yeah I was one type of person for this period of time and then thing x happened and I morphed into this other kind of person and it's Important, I think, to let people know that they are allowed to change.
0: Absolutely. You can
1: make a choice. I'm very like decision-averse. I get very freaked out by making choices because I'm afraid that I'm going to pick the wrong one. Mm -hmm. And there's a podcast that I love called Hurry Slowly, which is about the art of slowing down and being more deliberate. And uh, it's a really great show. The host is um, Jocelyn K. Gly, and she does a wonderful job with it. And one of her early interviews was with a guy who was talking about decision-making, and I think he's one of the founders of uh, Basecamp. And it's oh, a, cool. like a team management software. Yeah, yeah we use it sometimes. Hey! <laughs> um, so, one of the co founders of Basecamp was talking about making decisions. I think. I hope I'm not goofing this up. Uh, and in the interview, he was saying that, you know, making a decision is, is essentially traversing terrain, right? Mm-hmm. If you make a choice, you are moving through space and learning something about the environment that you're in. And if you choose to go north and you go north and you find that there is a ravine, you are not obligated to keep walking into the ravine. There totally. are very few choices that we make in this life that are irreversible. Yeah. And you can say like, oh, I gained some information. I thought this would be productive. There is a ravine. I'm going to go south. And you right. turn around and go the other way. But you
0: were like, what a beautiful ravine. Yeah. like look,
1: I love that I went on this journey. Whereas yeah. if you stay put because you're like, is there a ravine over there? I don't know. Exactly. I can't see it. Like, that has just changed everything in the way that I think about making choices. I, I think, love
0: it. I think experience is really the only thing that is true in this life. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Everything else is in flux. Everything else is about change. Mm -hmm. But your experience and and your openness to experience is going to be what gives you a fulfilling life.
1: Mm. Like,
0: because you you can't take it with you, as they say. Like, there's people are like, oh, like death is the only absolute. But it's not because death (laughs) is death is nothing and death would be nothing without experience. Yes. And so your experience is the only thing that matters. So, Mm -hmm. like, use it. Yep. Like, actually, like, decide that failure is okay and... And,
1: and that's so hard and for And change
0: is okay and, yeah. like... Uh- like you said, like making the wrong decision, that's fine. Yeah. You know, as long as, I mean, as long as you're not like hurting anyone else um, or hurting yourself. Yeah.
1: And, and if you are, you know, make that choice and then be like, Oh, turns out I can't work, you know, 60 hours a week on this project without really developing some issues. So like time to scale it back a little bit. Let's change. Yeah. Let's
0: do something different. And we're pressured so much to know.
1: Yeah, it is a beautiful thing. And it's something that I have spent a lot of my life being really afraid of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I still am in, in a lot of ways like disruption and and it's weird that I, I'm in this space where I wouldn't say that I'm an anxious traveler, but I struggle with travel. Like I, I get really obsessive about packing and worrying that I have exactly the right things on the mm-hmm. trip with me and like, oh, is it going to be okay if I don't bring X? And like really I'm traveling in, you know, developed America. Like I can buy whatever I need in most places. I met a guy at the airport waiting in the security line who had his work clothes on and a tiny backpack hadn't checked a bag. He had gone into work that morning in Seattle at Amazon and told his boss that he was like, hey, I came into work today, but honestly, like, I'm super depressed right now. It's been gray for months. I am thinking about hurting myself. Like, I need to get out of here and get some sunshine. And his boss was like, okay, what do you need? And he said, I think I need two weeks of working remotely. And the boss was like, all right, off you go. And he went from work without packing a bag to the airport and bought a ticket to Florida, which like... This is a position of privilege, right? Because right. you're working at Amazon, you're like making a decent salary. But still the whole thing was like, wait, you're going to, what? Like you're just in the security line right. and you just bought a ticket to wherever there was sun and like you're bringing your laptop and nothing else. And he was like, yeah, what it, I mean, I buy two t-shirts there and I'm good. And I was like, man, that's, that's insane.
0: And that's <laughs> it, this is also like a perception and like a, a a structure thing because I think a lot of us are are taught to believe that travel or that doing that kind of thing mm-hmm. is inaccessible completely. And sometimes yeah. it is like money wise right. for sure. A hundred. But also 150%. traveling on the cheap. It's
1: the same with the tour thing. People are like, Oh my gosh, that's gotta be so expensive. Like you're traveling for six weeks. It's probably going to be like eight weeks by the time I'm done. Yeah. And You know, I'm using airline points. I'm staying with friends. Like, I haven't had to pay for lodging yet. I'm taking the train. I'm doing Chinese commuter flights and flying one way. Like, I think it will not cost so much uh, that selling books will probably cause me to break about even, which is fine. Like, you know, there are worse things to do with two months of your life. Yeah.
0: It's definitely something that you have to, like prepare for and, and be smart enough to like mm-hmm. know how to do it efficiently. Like I, I'm not saying that I can travel all the time. I'm not no. saying that like travel is a thing that a lot of people can do, but we do live in an era in which there are options. Yes. Like I, again, I take the mega bus to, from Minneapolis to Chicago all the time to like see my friends mm-hmm. and it costs me usually $20 to get from how here to there. How long is the ride?
1: Eight
0: hours, six, six to eight hours. Yeah. Um, and I just think about it. I'm like, $20 is how much I would pay for an Uber.
1: To, like, you know? go around town, yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> like
0: on on an expensive day, if I'm going out, I'm spending much more. I spent, yeah, like, $80 going to, like... A, a weird bar and like also getting some sushi yesterday and it's right. like I could have spent that money to go see my friends in Chicago they could have housed me you know yeah. like
1: couchsurfing is an amazing website where you can go stay with people for free yeah and like meet strangers from other places and stay with them like that and, and it's still around like when I uh, I took a gap year before I went to college and saved up as much money as I could scrape from working various jobs in my hometown and uh took off for eight months and traveled solo in Europe and it was incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I was like, you know, 16 and planning the trip, I came running to my mom because I was like, mom, I found this website that lets you stay with strangers from the internet. And she (laughs) was like, "Uh, hold up. And to her credit, she went and read the website and then was like, wow, this is actually a really good idea. And like these people are verified. There's like, there was a system of, of checks and balances so you could like figure out you know, um, if people were who they said they were and I did it for eight months and like had no creepy experiences. People were really awesome. It was so much better than staying in a hostel because like while in a hostel you'll meet other international travelers, Yeah. you won't meet people who live in the country Mm -hmm. and staying with locals was great because they knew the places to go. They spoke the language. Like there was more of an exchange there and it was really beautiful. I just, I had such a good time doing it. And I've been really curious to see I don't know. I would love to see data on like with the rise of Airbnb, whether people have ditched couch surfing to be like, yeah. oh, well, if I could make money at this, like the introduction of money ruins a lot of things. But, uh, but I, some- I would love to use it again. I think it would be cool.
0: Yeah. And sometimes like an Airbnb host will make it worth the money that you're giving them. I, right. Yeah.
1: And it's it's a good thing to have access yeah. to sometimes for sure.
0: I stayed in uh in Brussels with my brother a um, couple, couple summers ago and my host was just the nicest dude mm-hmm. i mean the the place is beautiful and whatever and he was like yeah like here's some beer like have a chat with us like can i yeah. get you anything like like made made us a part of his like his life for a second. yeah, And and that was like such an amazing experience. I imagine that couch surfing was probably the same It's very much
1: that. Yeah, it's, and I think I'm comparing it to the sort of anodyne Airbnb experience of like being in a place and someone has an ADU or like an apartment Mm -hmm. that they own that they're never in. And so like, it's basically going to a hotel with a kitchenette. Sure. And that to me is like, Sure, like I guess you can pay for that that it's like a slightly more upscale hotel, but the the promise of couch surfing is like be a part of somebody's life totally. Totally. And you're not always sleeping on a couch, which is good because as I age, like that's less viable. I'm I'm
0: over it. (laughs) I never want to do it. I'm literally like experiencing back pain right now and I'm like, why? I have a great a memory phone pad on my bed. But you bed. also just
1: like went over your bike handlebars,
0: right? So That is true. I am take care of your maybe body. sore. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I was like I was like feeling my hand and I'm like is this hand cramps? And I'm like no. It was bike It's trauma. disaster. Yes. Um well This was a really fantastic chat. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much Um, for having me on. This is a ton of stuff that I've been like thinking about and dying to talk about. So I'm,
0: I'm so glad that you stopped by. Yeah. Uh, This is the magic and the beauty of the internet and, and socialness and all the amazing things and all the opportunities to meet people. Um,
1: and James, all of James's work, just like making sure that everyone knows the gallery exists.
0: Shout out to James. (laughs) Um, And and shout out to Jenny and Lindsay too. Uh, hope you guys are doing great in Norway. I'm not jealous. I'm I'm also super not jealous. Um, We're having
1: a great time in this cold basement without you.
0: Hey hey, why is it so cold here? <laughs> It's um, probably pretty
1: cold in Norway, too, to be fair.
0: That's that's true. But they're in mountains and not in the podcast dungeon.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, maybe I'll make some, like, paper mache mountains and we can kind of just, like, pretend for a second.
1: Yeah. We're going to make them super jealous.
0: Yes. Um. So, Lucy Bellwood's book, 100 Demon Dialogues. got to read it. It's,
1: it's on the internet. It's you on can, the internet. You can read it for free because I give all my stuff away for free because I'm a bad capitalist. Or,
0: yeah, you can buy it. You can get it in, in a book form and then right you can buy it it from a
1: bookstore you can go to your favorite local comic shop or bookstore and just be like yo get me lucy bellwood's book
0: it's it's and they can do that for you it's gonna is it gonna be like stocked at majors and quinn
1: yeah uh they're gonna have it on hand and like you know any bookstore like i think again this is part of that educational mission thing is that people are all into like well Amazon can just sell you anything your local bookstore can get you anything like if you go to them and you're Mm -hmm. like hey give me this book by this title they'll order it for you and then you can just go pick it up or they can send it to you sometimes the shipping is free like it's just really valuable to know that that resource exists I think most people assume that if a bookstore doesn't have something they can't stock it Mm -hmm. and honestly readers going to bookstores and saying hey have you heard of Lucy Bellwood I'd really love it if you stocked her book is so much more effective than me calling up and saying hi I'm an indie author could you please stock my title it I promise that people will buy it I will send folks to your (laughs) store like it's that's such a hard sell to make and they get that stuff all the time so if you are listening to this and you want to read 100 demon dialogues or you want to read baggy wrinkles my first graphic novel which is a memoir about the time I spent sailing on tall ships Mm -hmm. which is a cool fun thing especially if you live in the Midwest and you don't get much ocean
0: this is Yeah, this isn't something that we got to talking about on the podcast, but uh, Lucy, again, loves boats.
1: Got so Um, much. Just so much. Uh, I just found out that Emma Rios is uh, on a tall ship right now, like touring around Portugal. And uh, a friend texted me to be like, hey, another cartoonist is doing a tall ship thing. So now I got to like go nerd out about that. It, real that hard.
0: honestly sounds incredible. Yeah. I think I'll do the same.
1: It's, absolutely. Um, Everyone should do it. But yeah, yeah, you can you can order all these books. You can also get them on my website, lucybellwood.com. Uh, you can read all these comics for free online. I am at Lou Bell Woo on most social media, which is L U B E L L W O O. And I'll,
0: I'll put that in the show notes yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, th- those are all my places.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, I hope the rest of your tour goes great.
1: It's going to be awesome. Yay. Yay. Okay. Goodbye. See you
0: later.